Section 70 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Hope Force One. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1, Section 70. Early Christian Art by W. R. Leatherby. Chapter 21. Early Christian Art Not many years ago, Greek art seemed to be marked off from Roman, and Roman from early Christian, by wide intervals. The art of Greece was typified by the buildings of the Athenian Acropolis, Roman art by those of the Imperial Forum and the Palatine, and Christian art by the catacombs. Unceasing exploration and fruitful discoveries have since brought to light so many works of the transitional periods that art history has become rather the account of a continuous process than of clearly defined epochs and schools. The art of Rome itself under the new light, appears rather as one of the many later Hellenistic schools than as purely indigenous. Part of the transition from classical Greek may be traced in the art centers of Asia Minor, and part, again, in the known Roman city of Pompeii. As to the latter, it is held that the sequences of style which have been distinguished in its wall paintings were probably fashions imported from Alexandria. The covering of internal walls with thin slabs of rare colored marbles and porphyries, and the incrustation of vaults with mosaics of gilt and colored glass, had the same origin. This process of change in classical art carries us to some point in the early centuries of Christianity and many groups of facts show that it was long continued. Not only did Egypt and the East export their porphyry, ivory, glass, bronze and textiles, but craftsmen were drawn to the Roman capital from every Hellenistic city. The works used or made by the early Christians could at first have been differentiated in no obvious way from the current classical works of the time. When anything emerges which we can entitle Christian art, the change is, for the most part, manifest in a new spirit dealing with old forms. The art was necessarily shaped externally by the modes and codes of expression of the time. In many cases, new ideas were expressed under old forms. Thus the winged angel derives from the antique victory. The nimbus is classical as well as Christian. The story of Orpheus is interpreted as a type of Christ, and armor and psyche are adopted as symbols of the divine love and the soul. In so far as there was novelty, it is clear that, as Christianity itself was from the East, so the changed forms must themselves have held in them much that was Oriental. Early Christian art is Roman art in the widest sense, 
purified, orientalized, and informed with a new and epical content, which held as seed the possibilities of the mighty cycle of Byzantine and medieval art. It is still in Rome and in the catacombs that the best connected series of works of the first three or four centuries of this early art is found. The great roads of approach to Rome were lined by countless tombs of every degree of magnificence, rotundas, pyramids, cellae, and sarcophagi. Amongst them stood vestibules to underground tomb chambers where large numbers were buried in common. Along their walls, tire upon tire, urns of ashes were packed like vases in a museum. The Jews and other Oriental peoples followed the custom of burying the unburnt body in subterranean galleries, and appropriate sites for these also were obtained round about Rome. The Christians, following the same usage, at first shared such catacombs, and in other cases formed groups of their own. The catacombs were primarily not places of hiding, however much they may have been so used. Frequently there was space above ground planted as a garden, and made use of as a cemetery. In some were small burial chapels from which access was obtained to the catacombs beneath. The ruins of two or three such chapels have been discovered and described. They agree in having had a central apse and two lateral apses grouped together at one end. There were also subterranean chapels, the most famous of which is the Capella Grecque of the Catacomb of Priscilla. It has roughly the form of a small nave or body, 8 by 25 feet, ended by an apse with lateral apses on each side of it. It opens from a long vaulted apartment or atrium. The walls are decorated with paintings of the usual subjects, Daniel and Lazarus, Moses, Susanna and the Adoration of the Magi. On the vault over the nave are foreheads representing the seasons. Above the central apse is represented the Eucharistic repast. This recently discovered Fractio Panis is not only one of the most interesting, it is also one of the most beautiful of the catacomb paintings, as may be seen in the large photographer published by Wilpert. The forms and features of the seven participants are classic and gracious. It is painted in a masterly way in a few simple colors on a vermilion ground. The inscriptions on the walls are in Greek, hence the name of the chapel. In the apse was an altar tomb. It belongs to the second century. Another catacomb church is probably of the third century, and a third, the largest, in the catacomb of St. Hermes is probably of the fourth. The catacombs themselves are complexes of subterranean passages and galleries excavated for the disposal of the dead, who rested one above another along the sides. The chambers, more or less square, were roughly vaulted above, and the vaults and walls were for the most part decorated with painting and occasionally with stucco reliefs. 
this ornamentation was a branch of the ordinary house and tomb decorator's work of the time, and the painted subjects were clearly executed with the swift mastery which came of long practice in repeating a limited stock of ideas. The vaulted ceilings were usually decorated by some geometrical arrangement of panels, radiating from the centre and bounded by a large circle. In these panels were little figures, groups, birds, and foliage. The colours were reds, greens, and ochres, and a little blue, the whole mellow yet bright. The subjects of these paintings have been most thoroughly illustrated, and their chronology analysed in Wilpert's large work. Under the first century he grouped several schemes of vault decoration, in which the motives consist of the geometrical division of the field, and of little putty and foliage. One vault is entirely covered with a branching vine, on others of the same century are landscapes and burial feasts, while the cycle of biblical subjects begins with Daniel standing between two lions and the good shepherd. To the second century he assigns vaults on which appear the three children in the furnace, Moses striking the rock, the Eucharist, Noah and the ark, scenes from the story of Jonah, and subjects from the life and miracles of Christ the raising of Lazarus, the cure of the paralytic, the cure of the woman, and the meeting with the Samaritan. The most noticeable and beautiful is in the cemetery of Priscilla, and represents the seated virgin and child, with a prophet standing by, and a star or the sun above. This is a small group at the side of a central composition of the Good Shepherd, from which it is divided by a flowering tree, this central subject and the trees on either hand of it were roughly modelled in the plaster before colouring. The modelling of the tree is but a few swift marks of the tool, defining the trunk, and the leaves and flowers are painted. The virgin and child are beautifully drawn, with some remaining tradition of classical feeling. The figures are only about a foot high, and unhappily the lower part is much injured. The whole is very like a sketch by Watts. Belonging to this century are two or three versions of the baptism. Another subject is the mocking of Christ. Others are symbolical. A ship in a storm, Orpheus charming the beasts, and Orante, who represents souls rather than persons. One beautiful vault is decorated by a series of bands on the lowest of which, on the four sides, are four typical occupations of the seasons, picking flowers, cutting corn, the vintage, and gathering olives, while the upper bands are ornamented successively with pattern work of roses, corn, vine, and olive. Amongst the third-century paintings may be noticed Christ and Throne, the Virgin and the Magi, and Amor and Psyche, are gathering flowers. In the 4th century, Christ is represented enthroned amidst the twelve apostles, as in the apses of the early basilicas. In the 5th century, the treatment of the figures becomes more rigid and hieratic, 
while their costumes are much bejeweled in a manner distinctly Byzantine. There is little in the catacomb paintings which has peculiar application to the grave. The raising of Lazarus or Daniel between the lions belonged to a series of deliverance subjects which were in general use in all forms of early Christian art. When we come to the 4th and 5th centuries, the decoration resembles that which we are accustomed to in the churches of those centuries, and the decoration of the earlier catacombs would have been equally according to the general custom of the time when they were built. That is, the pre-Constantinian churches and earlier domestic oratories must have been painted in like fashion with the catacombs. The ideas underlying the choice of subjects are of resurrection and salvation, thoughts which are further expressed in the simple epitaphs which speak of hope, peace and eternal welfare. Some of the subjects chosen have, indeed, been compared with the ancient prayers for the dying, Deliver, O Lord, thy servant as thou didst deliver Enoch and Elias from the common death as thou didst deliver Noah from the deluge, Job from his torments, Isaac from the sacrifice, Moses from the hand of Pharaoh, Daniel from the lions, the three young men from the furnace, and Susanna from false accusation, so the I to deliver the soul of thy servant. The Orante, who were figured with extended arms amid such scenes, are types of supplication, they are generally feminine and are symbols of the soul in prayer. Thus understood, they go far to explain the scope and meaning of the art of the catacombs. There is little sculpture in the round extant from our period, but it is almost surprising that there is any. The examples of three or four figures of the Good Shepherd bearing the lamb on his shoulder the most perfect of these in the Lateran Museum is a sweet pastoral figure. They have been compared with statues of Hermes bearing the ram. The composition is clearly derived, but the sentiment is very different. As usual, the Christians were using old symbols in a new spirit. The early sarcophagi furnish us with a series of relief sculptures parallel in extent and interest to the paintings of the catacombs. Some are so little differentiated from late classical art that it is hardly possible to say whether they are indeed Christian. Others have quite a collection of the usual triumph subjects which appear in the catacombs as paintings. The most noteworthy of all of them is a fragment, now in the Berlin Museum, which was lately brought from Constantinople. On it appears Christ and two apostles, standing in niches, separated by columns. Christ is unbearded, and the head has a cruciform nimbus. The figures, which are about four feet high, are draped in a dignified style like classical statues of philosophers. This remarkable work has the closest relation of style with the series of late antique sarcophagi, one of which is in the mausoleum room of the British Museum, another in the Cook Collection at Richmond. The Berlin Relief, 
probably belongs to the 3rd century and had its origin at Constantinople or in Asia Minor. Another famous sarcophagus is that of Junius Bassus, prefect of Rome, who died in 359. It has several scenes sculptured on it, amongst which are Christ enthroned, the entry into Jerusalem, Christ brought before Pilate, and Pilate washing his hands, also Adam and Eve, Daniel, etc. The sculptures are in panels divided by columns, some of which are covered with scrolls of foliage, among which climb Amorini. This ornamentation is noteworthy, as the columns thus decorated resemble the celebrated sculptured columns at St. Peter's, which are usually thought to be antique. These columns formed a screen in front of the altar of Constantine's Basilica. They were saved and reused in the new church. The motive of cupids climbing amidst vines is also found on the mosaics of Santa Costanza, circa 360, and on many tombs. Two more most famous sarcophagi must be spoken of, those of the Empress Helena and of Santa Costanza. Both are of royal porphyry, with sculptures in high relief, and they are now in the Vatican. That of the Empress is sculptured with a military triumph, that of Costanza with Amorini and the vintage peacocks and lambs. With the latter, Strysogovsky has lately compared fragments of other porphyry sarcophagi at Constantinople and Alexandria, and has shown that they must all have come from Egypt, the land of the porphyry quarries and the place of origin of other porphyry sculptures, such as the well-known group at the southwest corner of St. Mark's, Venice. A class of objects which dates from the time of the catacombs, if not from the apostolic age, is that of engraved gems. Of these the British Museum has a good representative collection. The use of rings as signets or ornament was as widely spread among the early Christians as among their pagan contemporaries. St. James speaks of the man who wears a gold ring and goldly apparel, and the fathers of the church were obliged to reprimand the community for extravagance in this respect. The devices engraved on these gems are for the most part of a simple symbolic character, as befits the small field which they occupy. In the British Museum collection we have anchors and fish, doves and trees, sheep, branches of olive and palm, shepherd's crooks, ships, sacred monograms, the word I-X-O-Y-C, and the inscription Vivas in Deo. Of more pictorial subjects we have the good shepherd bearing the sheep, Adam and Eve, Daniel, Jonah, and the Crucifixion. Two are especially important. One of them contains quite a collection of the favorite subjects brought together on its narrow space. The Good Shepherd with the sheep, Daniel and the lions, the dove with the olive branch, and the story of Jonah, as well as two trees, fish, a star, and a monogram. The other is probably the earliest representation of the Crucifixion known, 
and must date from the third century at latest. On either side of the crucified Christ are six much smaller figures. The apostles and above is the word I-X-O-I-C. Monsieur Beyer in Les Origines du Crucifix, 1904, suggests that the representation was of Syrian origin and arose in opposition to merely symbolical interpretations. At South Kensington, there are several early Christian, Gnostic, and Byzantine rings, some of which are of importance. One is a ship with the XP monogram on its sail. Another has two saints embracing, probably the visitation. Another has a symbolic composition engraved on silver, which has been figured by Garucci and others. Later writers copy it from Garucci and seem not to know of its being preserved now at South Kensington. From a pillar resting on a pyramid of steps spring branches of foliage above which, in a circle, is a lamb with the XP monogram. Below the branches stand two sheep, and two doves fly toward the tree. It is inscribed, Janvari Vivas. The elementary symbols which are found on the engraved rings and all the other objects of art are so direct and simple, as has been said, that they are still perfectly obvious and modern. We have the anchor, cross, crook, ship, lighthouse, fish and star, the dove, lamb, drinking hearts, palms and olive branches, trees, baskets of fruit, lamps and candles, chalice, Amphora, bowl of milk, the vintage, harvest, sowing and fishing, the shepherd, the orante, eros and psyche, the heavenly sanctuary, the celestial banquet, and garden of paradise. Out of this alphabet ideas were built up by combination. Thus we have a ship with a crossmast and the sacred monogram on its sails. Another ship on a stormy sea approaching a lighthouse still another ship made fast to land bearing vessels of wine and with a dove holding a branch of olive perched on the rigging or we have a lamb lying at the foot of the cross or another caressing an axe there are combined anchors and crosses flowering crosses crosses with birds perched on their arms and crosses rising from a moon from which flow four rivers. Larger objects in metalwork must be mentioned, if only that attention may be drawn to the celebrated cascade of Projecta and the excellent collection of bronze candlesticks and hanging lamps at the British Museum. The silver toilet casket is entirely pagan in style. On the top are the portraits of a husband and bride, in a wreath supported by cupids. On the front is embossed the toilet of Venus, and a lady seated between handmaids who bring to her articles of the toilet. At the ends are nerkids, and the smaller spaces are filled by peacocks, doves, and baskets of fruit. The most interesting subject is that on the back, where the bride is being led to her new home, a house of two stories, covered above by several domes. The inscription, which is in letters pricked on the plain border, 
is the only Christian thing about the work, and it is possible, as in the case of some of the sarcophagi with pagan subjects, that it was shop work, and that the inscription was added for the purchaser. There are many indications that it was made in Alexandria. We have in our English museums a remarkably fine collection of early Christian ivories. At South Kensington, there is a leaf of a famous diptych inscribed Simacorum, the companion of which in Paris is inscribed Nicomacorum. It is not itself Christian, but it can be associated with other works which are, and it can be accurately dated as of the end of the 4th century. It is of extraordinary beauty, both of design and workmanship, and is the most perfect existing example of marriage diptychs. It was made on the occasion of the marriage of Neomachus Flavianus, with the daughter of Quintus Aurelius Symmachus, consul in AD 391, or another marriage between the same families in 401. Now there is an ivory in the Trivulzio collection at Milan, sculptured with the representation of the Holy Sepulchre and watching soldiers, on which some of the details are identical with the one just spoken of, and a third diptych, of the same class, having exactly similar details, and inscribed with the name of Rufunus Probianus, is now at Berlin. They are all so much alike in style, that it would seem that they must come from one shop, and may even be the work of the same hand. At the British Museum there are some pieces which form the sides of a casket, which are sculptured with scenes from the Passion. Some of the subjects have so much in common with the other ivories just discussed that they may be assigned to the same school. On these panels are represented Pilate washing his hands, St. Peter's denial, Christ bearing the cross, the crucifixion, Judas hanged, the women at the sepulchre, the incredulity of St. Thomas. Pilate washing his hands is a fine classical composition which may be compared with the same subjects on the Brescia coffer, which also has the denial of St. Peter and the death of Judas. This coffer is acknowledged to be early 4th century work, which is further confirmed by the fact that on the sarcophagus of Junius Bassus, the subject of Pilate washing his hands is treated in a similar manner. The Brescia coffer has often been called the most beautiful of Christian ivories. It has been pointed out that the cycle of subjects from the Passion represented upon its stops before the crucifixion, and it has been held that this omission was a matter of principle. But the London series and other still earlier treatments of the crucifixion which are now known contradict this view. The holy sepulchre as it appears on the British Museum fragments, is identical with that on the Trivulzio tablet before mentioned, and the curious costume of the watching soldiers is alike in both. In both the doors of the tomb are burst open, and in both on the panels of the doors is carved the raising of Lazarus. These British Museum panels have been assigned by the museum authorities to the 5th century, 
but there can be little doubt that they should be classed with the other 4th century works they so closely resemble. They are distinctly earlier in style than the car doors of Santa Sabina in Rome, which are usually dated about 425. There are other points which go to show that these ivories were wrought in Rome, although possibly by a school of Eastern ivory carvers. A domed building practically identical with the upper part of the Holy Sepulchre on the British Museum Ivory is found on a 4th century Roman sarcophagus now in the Lateran, while the Trivulzio tablet has the symbols of the four evangelists appearing in the sky, which are remarkably similar to the same symbols in the apse mosaic of Santa Prudentiana, wrought about 390. These symbols hardly appear in Byzantine work, but they do in Egyptian wall paintings. Another casket at the museum, which is carved with the stories of St. Peter and St. Paul, has much in common with the one last described. Moses striking the rock seems at first an intrusion amongst these subjects, but it was in fact a favorite early Christian type of the gospel, and is frequently found in the catacombs. Christ is the rock, St. Peter is the Moses of the new law, and the water is that of baptism. In some cases, indeed, the name of Peter is written over what appears to be the figure of Moses. This treatment occurs again engraved on the glass vessel from Colony in the museum. At South Kensington are sides of a casket sculptured with scenes from the life of Christ, and known as the Worden Casket. The subjects comprise to the Annunciation, the angel appearing to Joseph, the Visitation, the Presentation of the Virgin, the Three Shepherds, the Nativity, the Magi, men going out of Jerusalem toward the Jordan, the axe laid to the root of the tree, the Baptism. The Annunciation is represented after a form which appears in the apocryphal Gospel of St. Matthew according to which the virgin was drawing water at a fountain when the angel appeared. The ox and ass of the nativity come from the same source, as also does the presentation in the temple. On this casket, Christ at the baptism is represented as small and youthful as compared to the Baptist. Mr. Cecil Tor has founded on this the conjecture that an account different from that in the Gospels was followed, but it may be suggested that it came about through some stylistic formula like that of the old Egyptian monuments, whereby some persons might be bigger than others. Compare three ivories, 373 to 375, in Cabral's dictionary. It is true that we should expect the Christ to be the dominating figure, but may it not in this instance be the Baptist's office which is magnified. A famous ivory book cover at Milan has subjects which resemble those of the Verdon casket so closely that they must have come from the same shop, except for slight changes called for by the different spaces to be filled, the Nativity, the Wise Men, the Shepherds and the Annunciation, the Presentation of the Virgin and the Baptism are all practically identical. There is also a Bodleian, an ivory of the same school which contains a baptism.
the early Christian gilt glasses from Diderot were shallow glass bowls and other vessels decorated with figures, inscriptions, etc. In gold leaf, the detailed drawing being made out by removing parts of the gold and the hole fixed by a film of glass fused over the surface. The subjects show that vessels so ornamented were used alike by pagans, Jews and Christians. They have been more particularly associated with the later, as a large number of the decorated medallions which form the bottoms of the glasses have been found in the catacombs, where they were stuck in the plaster, probably as one means of the identification of the loculus. In the fine collection at the British Museum is a medallion with a figure of the gladiator Stratonicus, which, together with some others, is evidently of pagan origin, and one with the seven-branched candlestick and other ritual objects of the temple is Jewish. In the main, the gilt glasses belong to the third and fourth centuries of our era. They were most popular from circa 300 to circa 350, and few were made after 400. The method of decoration seems to have originated in the glassworks of Egypt. Many of them are inscribed TTIE ZHCAIC, which on others is found in the corrupt form PIEZESES. This suggests a Greek origin. And there is in the British Museum Christian collection a fragment of a glass bowl found at Benessa in Egypt in 1903, which bears part of the earlier form in large engraved letters. In the slate collection, in the glass room, there are two most beautiful basins with exquisitely refined classical decoration in gold. These, it is said, were probably made in Alexandria in the first century, and the method of ornamentation by designs in gold foil enclosed between two thicknesses of glass is similar to that employed in the case of early Christian gilded glasses. Probably the Christian, Jewish and pagan vessels were sold together in the same shops. Among those at the British Museum, for instance, there is one with profile heads of St. Peter and St. Paul and Christ between, crowning them. Another has a man and wife with a small figure of Christ offering them garlands and this inscription, Long life to thee, sweet one. Similar pagan compositions show a Cupid or a Hercules between the husband and bride. The Jewish gloss with the golden candlestick also has the popular inscription Long Life. The vessels were evidently made use of largely as memorial anniversary or wedding gifts, and some were especially made with personal inscriptions. Volpel, in his thorough study of these objects, has shown that where the names of two saints occur in one piece, the names also come together in the calendar. As St. Agnes and St. Vincent of Saragossa, 21st and 22nd January. This goes to confirm the view that they were prepared for special festivals. In the British Museum there are also fragments of a larger glass dish, or paten, decorated with small medallions of such gilded glass which were made apart and fused into it. Glass patents were used in the office of the mass during the 4th century. 
at South Kensington Museum, one little medallion of Christ with the wand of power is a replica of one of those on the British Museum Peyton, with the later maybe mentioned two beautiful plain blue glass chalices in the Slade collection. The biblical subjects which appear on the gilt glasses resemble for the most part those popular in the catacombs, Adam and Eve, Jonah and the Whale, Daniel, and so on. Some of the fragments at the British Museum may be restored by a comparison with other objects. One interesting piece which shows two columns with the lattice between the lower part and the lamp hanging above, compared with a figure in Pirates' manual, is seen to have been, when complete, a deceased person in the attitude of prayer before the heavenly sanctuary. The inscription INDEO confirms this view. Number 615 which shows the golden candlestick in the lower half, the upper being lost, must have had the ark and the cherubim in the upper part like another figured by Garucci. None of these gilt glasses are known to have ever been found in Britain, but fragments of engraved glass, almost certainly Christian, were found at Silchester. The fashion for engraved glasses seems to have followed that for those decorated in gold. Cologne was an important centre for the production of this glass. The patent above mentioned and another ornate gilt glass were found there. So also was the cup with engraved subjects, number 625, in our National Museum, and others like it are preserved at Cologne. The small terracotta lamps decorated with the cross, monogram, dove, vine or other symbol can here be only mentioned. But a small shallow bowl of glazed ware in the British Museum must be referred to as one of the most important of early Christian works of art. On it appears Christ having a cruciform nimbus and the face bearded, the earliest example of the kind, which may be compared with heads of the more youthful type on some of the gilt glasses in the same gallery. On the bowl there are heads also of Constantine and Fausta on either hand of the chief figure. They are named in an inscription around the rim and shoe, and show that it must have been made before the death of Fausta in 326. Following the analogy of the gilt glasses, where a figure of Christ is placed between the portraits of a husband and wife, may we not suppose that this vessel was made for Constantine himself? Recently, Wilpert has argued against its authenticity, but Strysogovsky, who formerly doubted, is now entirely convinced. It is generally agreed that it was of Egyptian origin. Most of the objects preserved in our museums show how freely the, the early Christians of the time, following the peace of the church, made use of various materials in ornamental art. A bishop, indeed complained that the weavers rivaled painters in representing animals, flowers and figures on their stuffs. Of late years, great stores of early textiles have been found, wonderfully preserved under the sands of Egypt, and a fine collection has been brought together at South Kensington. Some of the earliest figured linens seem to have been printed. Two of these at the museum are of the Annunciation, 
and another shows some scenes from the miracles of Christ, and also Moses receiving the law. These stained linen clothes were sometimes figured with pagan subjects. On the staircase of the Egyptian section at the Louvre there has recently been exhibited an important piece on which is depicted the story of Dionysus. In this classical piece we have the same characteristics of style, big eyes, flowing draperies, inscriptions associated with the figures and even the large nimbuses. End of section 70. Recording by Hope Force One.